0: Long selection for preparing us for the table of the Lord. I meet with a younger pastor every Thursday morning at 6 a.m. via FaceTime. We've been meeting like that for a few years now. And um, every Thursday morning, 6 a.m., unless we're on holidays or have other family or ministry commitments which I have to admit is, is fairly rare. This past Wednesday, we dropped Wayne Foster off at his home in Paris after completing the AGC Eastern Region Conference. Around 9 p.m. Wednesday night, we got home, unpacked, and, and Cynthia and I just fell into bed. Cynthia drifted off rather quickly, but... I decided to watch a little bit of the basketball game. (laughs) And as you know, the basketball game ended about midnight. And by the time I settled down, it was well after 12 o'clock. At 6.09 a.m., Cynthia poked me and said, George, don't you have a meeting this morning? To be honest, at that moment... I wasn't even sure what day of the week it was. But I quickly got on my phone and texted my friend, expressed my regrets, and apologized as best I could. What a way to start the day. You ever have that kind of experience? Ever do anything like that? Forget a commitment that you've made, an obligation, something that you are committed to do? Have you ever forgotten a birthday or an anniversary? Forget to return a call? Forgetfulness. Can anybody out there relate? (laughs) Apparently that's why Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. He knew our forgetful tendencies. And so when the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth to sort of correct some of their behavior at the Lord's Supper, he quoted Jesus as saying, do this in remembrance of me. In fact, in the very next verse, he says it again. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus knew our forgetful tendencies. Our practice here at the Raw Community Church is to celebrate the Lord's Supper On the second Tuesday, second Tuesday, (laughs) on the second Sunday of every month, so that we will remember, but remember what exactly? If you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3 and verses 21 to 26. Well at the conference this past Tuesday and Wednesday, in order to maintain our credentials with the AGC, we need to sign a reaffirmation of our faith document. But before we signed that document, they took time to read through the entire AGC's doctrinal statement. And as it was being read, I... Found that I resonated, or at least some of the preparation that I had done in this passage of Scripture resonated with what was being read. Listen carefully as I read from the AGC's doctrinal statement Salvation is available by grace through faith. This salvation is not our own doing, it is the gift of God. Salvation includes being declared righteous. By God. And then in square brackets, justification. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to help us remember here in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. He's reminding us that God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Please stand with me if you're able for the reading from God's Word, Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. I should say that the, the book of Romans is written by the Apostle Paul. It is primarily full of theological instruction. It provides us, especially chapters 1 to 11, with a theological framework. It sets the basis of everything that we believe. Romans chapter 12 to 16 takes on a more practical feel. Tells us what that theological framework would look like in real life. The theme of this book is the righteousness of God is paid in full. You could say that God justifies guilty and condemns sinners by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the central message of the book of Romans. And now we begin reading. At ver- well, let's start at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, you are gracious and merciful. Your mercy keeps you from giving us what we truly deserve. Your grace provides us with the good things that we do not deserve and could never earn. Thank you for Jesus, for his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and imminent return. Come, Lord Jesus, come. As we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning, May the Holy Spirit who resides in each and every genuine believer enlighten our minds as we study this text so that we are found remembering things about Jesus and about your salvation that will spur us on in our walk with you. May we be encouraged to be faithful. And for those who are not genuine believers, Will you help them to understand their need? May they be convicted of their sinfulness, repent, and begin trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, even this morning, before they leave this place. Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Five reflections on the righteousness of God. That's what we want to look at. Five reflections on the righteousness of God. Reflection number one, the righteousness of God is knowable. Look at verse 21. Notice how it starts. But now. Those two words introduced a sharp contrast with what has been said previously. Immediately in the previous verse, but also to a larger extent, the entire first section of, of the book of Romans it begins in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, goes all the way through to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And it's all about... Man's sinfulness. His inability to live up to the standard of perfection that God requires for a relationship with him. And Paul paints a, a devastating and catastrophic picture of who we really are when left to ourselves. In fact, in John chapter 3... Beginning at verse 10, we read these words. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That's who we are from God's perspective. We're shipwreck. But now, that's how verse 21 begins. But now. Verse 21 turns the corner. Did you catch that glimmer of hope in those words? But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been manifested. So the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the Mosaic Law. Look what the previous verse says. Verse 20. Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. The New Living Translation reads, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. Beloved, the law does a lot of things. But it, what it will never do is declare us as righteous. Righteous. That was never the purpose of the law. So what is the purpose of the law? The law was given to the nation of Israel to first of all show the holiness of their God. And secondly, to show them or expose the degree of their sinfulness. We all know what a tutor is, right? A tutor comes along and helps a student to gives them support, provides a little bit extra to help them academically. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 we read, "The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ." That's the purpose of the law. To show us our sinfulness so that we will then turn To Christ. Folks, it's never been about following the law. Never has been. God's or anyone else's list of do's and don'ts. This is really important for us to grasp. The righteousness of God that the Apostle Paul is speaking of here in Romans chapter 3 is not performance based. It is not performance-based. It does not depend on your performance or my performance. But now, apart from the law, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets. The law and prophets is just another way of saying the, the Old Testament scriptures. And so the Old Testament provides evidence of the righteousness of God. What Paul is teaching here is not new information. It's all there in the Old Testament. In fact, the very next chapter, Romans chapter 4, begins with two examples extracted from the Old Testament. Verses 1 to 5 in Romans chapter 4 talk about Abraham. In fact, verse 2 states, "...if his good deeds had made him acceptable to God..." He would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us. Abraham believed God. And was credited to him. Or counted to him. As righteousness. Because of his. Faith. The Old Testament informs us. That the righteousness of God. Is the result of faith. Not good works, or good deeds. The second example follows the first, talks about the words of David, and specifically, he's quoting from Psalm 32. The Apostle Paul used the words of David, again from the Old Testament, as evidence that the righteousness of God comes through faith, not as a result of our performance. So the Old Testament scripture testifies, according to the New International Version, or those that are carrying the English English Standard Version, bears witness that the righteousness of God is a result of faith, not works. Verse 22 of Romans chapter 3 really brings it all home for us. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In the original language, the literal translation would be stands manifested. With the arrival of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God stands manifested. The new international version translated has been made known. Hebrews chapter two verse fifteen claims that Jesus, who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. First Peter chapter two verse twenty-two, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. First John chapter three verse five and in him there is no sin, Jesus Christ was the perfect manifestation of the righteousness of God. The law is a tutor helping us to understand our need for the righteousness of God. The Old Testament scriptures bear witness, giving evidence that the righteousness of God comes through faith. Not our performance. And Jesus Christ stands as the perfect manifestation of the righteousness of God. Folks, the righteousness of God is knowable. What's the implication? We're without excuse. We can run, we can try to hide. We can compare and compete with others. We can choose to ignore it. We can deny, deny, deny. And we may even try to earn it. But now. But now, one thing is certain. We are without excuse. Because the righteousness of God is knowable. God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Look again at verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. You may want to take your pen and underline that phrase, for all those who believe. Reflection number two, the righteousness of God is accessible for all. And in case we missed it, Paul adds, there is no distinction. And later in Romans chapter 10, verse 12, we read, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all abounding in riches for all who call on him. It will be no surprise to you, and I'm sure that you know, that the Jews of Paul's day thought that they were just a a cut above everyone else. God's chosen people, superior to the Greeks and the Gentiles, non-Jews. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 explains the all and the no distinction even further. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The righteousness of God does not eliminate those kinds of distinctions, but it reaches through them. Remember the quote that I like to use from John Moore in Ken Neff's book, a blueprint for the New Testament church? They write, One of the basic skills many of us picked up as children was the ability to major in the minors. Whether it, is, whether it was in comparisons of Christmas presents, the number of green peas or beans on your plate, or who stayed up the latest last night, we specialize in, In matters of distinction not unity yet the opposite is stressed in the New Testament and the opposite is to be true of New Testament saints the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus is accessible to all who will believe without distinction implication Take it personally. This is for you, and this is for me. Doesn't matter where you've been, or where you are right now, or where you think you might be going. Doesn't matter who you're related to, or what you've accomplished to date. Doesn't matter who you know, or who knows you. The righteousness of God is available to everyone and anyone who will believe. Who will place their trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. It's not based on a feeling. Feeling sorry for past failures although that may be part of it. It's not based on what you know about God, although that certainly is part of it. It is an act of the will when we decide to commit our lives to Jesus Christ. You're willing to allow him to become the leader of your life. That kind of belief makes the righteousness of God accessible to each and every one of us. God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Reflection number three. The righteousness of God is essential for each and every one of us. For all. Look at verse 23. And some of you have committed it to memory. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice that statement is all inclusive. There are no exceptions. Every person in the history of the world, past, present, and future, have fallen short of the glory of God. The standard of perfection that God requires for relationship with Him. In other words... To sin. And there are no exceptions. We are all sinners by nature. And so we don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Thank you very much, Adam. You know the story, Genesis chapter 3, of Adam and Eve's disobedience. That was the beginning of the end paradise lost from then on the depravity of man begins at our conception for sure some lives express their depravity a whole lot more than others and in the process cause tremendous destruction to themselves and to those around them pain and suffering but the point is we all fall well short of the standard of perfection that God requires for relationship with him in fact we're not even close folks i was raised in a god-fearing home and for years i always hoped that in the end Somehow, the, the good that I was doing would outweigh the bad, and God would, I guess, graciously allow me into his heaven. It wasn't until I was 17 years old that I realized that I was a sinner in desperate need of Jesus, as presented in First John chapter 5, verse 11 to 13. And this is a testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life and he who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you so that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe in his name. So at the ripe old age of 17, Through faith in Jesus Christ, I believed and have been trusting in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation ever since. And that is not to say that I don't get continual reminders of my sinfulness. Sometimes I find it crushing. But in those times, I find strength and courage and comfort in these words. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The righteousness of God is absolutely essential because we can never attain that standard of perfection that He requires for relationship with Him, not on our own we can't, and anything less than that righteousness of God keeps us separated from God. Implication? It's easy. A well, kind of admit your failure. Each one of us must come to that place where we can look that person in the mirror and admit that we're not as good or as righteous as we may think we are. Hope that we are. Pretend that we are. Or as others may think that we are or as all those affirmations and applause might suggest that we are. Here again, God's assessment of your life, of my life. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God, All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And that includes you. It certainly includes me. Admit it. God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Enough of the bad news. Don't you agree? Let's move on to some good news. Look at verse 24. and the first half of verse 25. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a prohibition in His blood through faith. What does that tell you? What's that talking about? What's the reflection there? Don't cheat. The righteousness of God is a gift. Friday was our youngest grandson's second birthday. The party is later today. Cynthia and I are going to, well, we're planning to show up with gifts in hand. An original slip and slide, a new pair of summer sandal like shoes, and this really cool ball. All Nathaniel has to do is show up and open the gifts. They're his gifts from. Grandma and Grandpa. An expression, a small expression of our great love for this two-year-old grandson. But they did cost us something. God's gift is a declaration. A declaration, well, he declares us Righteous as an expression of his great love for us. That's what it means being justified. God declares unworthy sinners righteous through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God, that's the Father, and we all know from our studies and The Gospel of John, that it was the Father who sent the Son, Jesus, into the world. Displayed publicly as a propitiation. The Greek word just means to appease or to satisfy in his blood through faith. You see, God's gift cost them a whole lot more than what we paid for Nathaniel's birthday gifts. And God's gift wasn't available at Walmart or Costco or even online at Amazon. Jesus paid the price so that we can be set free, redeemed, ransomed. The word translated redemption is common in Paul's day. It was the price that was paid for a slave's freedom. Paul is using it here in reference to the price Jesus paid to purchase our freedom, to set us free from the power of sin and death. My studies this past week I came across an illustration that I found really helpful. This is not mine but I hopefully you will find it as helpful as I did. It's called the Triangle of Salvation. Have you heard about it? Some of you may have seen this before. Let me read the explanation as you look at the diagram on the screen behind me. At the top is God the Father. The lower left corner is Jesus Christ and the lower right corner is Christians, genuine believers. The death of Christ is in the middle of the triangle. On the left line connecting God the Father and Jesus Christ is the word propitiation in the blood of Jesus. You see, in his death, God the Son propitiated, satisfied the wrath of of God the Father. Propitiation had nothing to do with us. It had everything to do with satisfying the righteous anger of God the Father. On the bottom line of the triangle connecting Jesus Christ and Christians is redemption. Redemption is between Jesus and those who are trusting him alone for their salvation Jesus Christ has redeemed us out of the slave market of sin the line on the right connecting God the Father with Christians genuine believers is justification God the Father declares genuine believers to be the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ Understand this simple triangle, and you will understand the three theological words that are found in this passage propitiation, redemption, and reconciliation. To summarize, justification, verse 24, occurs between God the Father and the believing sinner. Propitiation, verse 25, occurs between God the Father and and Jesus Christ. And redemption, verse 24, occurs between God, the, between Jesus Christ and the believing sinner. In the very middle of the triangle of salvation is the death of Jesus Christ that accomplished all of this on the cross. Each of these three, three theological words reveal the multi-dimensional value the death of Christ on our behalf. We need more than merely justification. We need more than merely propitiation. We need more than redemption. We need all three. I found that really helpful in looking at this passage of scripture. I hope you found it helpful too. What's the implication? Receive it. Believe in Jesus. Receive it by trusting Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Romans 10 verse 9 puts it this way. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, justified, <laughs> propitiated, redeemed. And let's not make this more complicated than it needs to be. You can confess with your mouth something as simple as this. Father, please forgive me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sin. Help me to begin to live my life in a way that will please you, not just for myself or for what I think is right. Please, thank you, help. It's that easy and it's that difficult. So let me ask you what's keeping you? What's keeping you from confessing Jesus Christ as Lord? From trusting him alone for your salvation john 1 verse 12 puts it this way but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of god even to those who believe in his name god did for us what we could never do for ourselves reflection number five and we'll be quick the righteousness of god is demonstrated Look at the second half of verse 25 and verse 26. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's righteousness was demonstrated not by sweeping past sin under the rug. The NASB reads, he passed over sins previously committed. The New International Version says, left sins previously committed unpunished. We must avoid interpreting or misinterpreting the patience of God or presuming on his patience. God, with God, judgment delayed is never judgment denied. The re- redemption that Jesus purchased was by his shed blood. And future and the future sins for anyone and everyone who placed their faith in him. In the Old Testament, it was a faith that looked forward to God's deliverance. In the New Testament... The faith in Jesus at Calvary. Looking backwards. Verse 26 ends with a purpose statement. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Beloved, that's something we're celebrating. Our Father who is in heaven is a just God. Who justifies those who are trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation? He declares them righteous. Can you imagine? Glenn Bailey, righteous. Dan DeWitt. Righteous. Martha Fallowfield. Righteous. The righteousness of God is demonstrated in his person and in his declarations. He is just. And the justifier of all who believe. Implication? Man, if that's not something that we celebrate, I don't know what is. Celebrate the God who is both just and the justifier of all who believe. Celebrate our Redeemer who is willing to shed his own blood to pay the price and satisfy God's righteous wrath against our sin. Celebrate the doctrine of justification whereby profoundly corrupt sinners who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation are declared righteous. Beloved, celebrate the fact that God is willing to do for you what you could never do for yourself. In closing, let me summarize and then add one more clarification. Warren Worsby provides this helpful summary. The characteristics of justification are that it is apart from the law, verse 21, through faith in Christ, verse 22a, for all people, verse 22b to 23, by grace, a great cost to God, and a perfect justice. Here's the clarification. And we need to be mindful of this. Do not confuse justification with sanctification. Sanctification is a process whereby God is continually making a genuine believer more and more like Jesus. Sanctif- sanctification changes from day to day. Little by little, as we put ourselves in places and engage in activities that invite the Holy Spirit to do his transforming work in our lives, we become more and more like Jesus from the inside out. Justification, on the other hand, never changes. When the sinner trusts Christ, God declares us righteous. And that declaration stands forever and ever. Amen. It will never be repealed. From that moment on, God looks at us and deals with us as though we had never sinned at all. And that, my beloved, is worth celebrating. Let's pray. Father, thank you for so great a salvation. Specifically, we thank you for the possibility of being declared righteous. You made him become the righteousness of God in him so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a gift. Use these reflections on the righteousness of God to prepare us for a meaningful time of remembering as we participate in the Lord's Supper. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.